we live in a society. So let's fix it. Welcome, Mere Mortalites, to another round of the book reviews. My name is Kyron, host of the Mere Mortals podcast, but also this one where I dive deeper into the books that I'm reading to give you the juicy information within to extract some themes you might not have realized and to also have some thoughts. Indeed, we do have Charles Handy, The Second Curve, Thoughts on Reinventing Society. So this book was published in 2015, and it's about 230 pages in length. It took me about four to five hours to get through. It's not super, super dense. It is a collection of essays reflecting on societal changes and predicting potential innovations of the future. Now, most of this has a sort of technology and management focus to it, and it does have smatterings of facts taken from throughout history, from his own life, from modern culture, and he uses this to help reinforce his personal opinions. So it is very much an opinion-based book as indicated by the subtitle Thoughts on Reinventing Society. There is in total 16 essays throughout this and some of these are things such as the DIY society, the market, the glass towers of capitalism, the just society, the golden seeds, the necessity of others, the challenges of democracy. He does touch upon a lot of broad aspects, but most of it is humanity focused and in particular how humanity acts in groups and how we yeah how we act as a society the other part of the the subtitle there so i'm going to talk a little bit about the author uh, charles handy he was irish he was born in 1932 and is alive to this present day throughout his life he has had a extensive focus in the management economic side of things. So he worked for Shell Management for large portions of his career before moving over to become a professor, I believe, of economics and of management theory and things like that. Um, So he was associating with people like, um, I believe his name is Peter Drucker, who's kind of the management guru. And he grew up in the era of, you know, these big conglomerations, corporations uh, appearing in the United States and whatnot before finally transitioning to what he would say is his ultimate um, pleasure and what he should have been doing probably years earlier, which was becoming a writer. So this book is the latest in a long publishing history. He mostly published from 1976 through to 2006. So, you know, the later part, and the, the, I suppose, wise part of his years. And this book in particular, published in 2015, is the latest and it was published at 83. So, kudos to him for, for keeping on and, and rocking on um, still publishing books at, at that late age in life. Let's get into the first theme and I have extracted one, innovation, get started before the decline. So, What is innovation? I'm going to define this and it is to make changes in something established and it's new methods, new ideas, new products essentially is is what innovation is. What you notice about that is it's rather ambivalent. It doesn't have a idea of whether this is good nor bad. So you can have products which can make society worse or they can make them better. Ideally, it would hope to be better, but you know, this isn't always the case. Now, this probably gets into what is the second curve and the title of this book. And so, if you look on your screen now, you'll see that there is a a sigmoid, an S-shaped curve or an S that has been laid on its side. And basically, what this curve shows is that when you're creating something, when you're innovating, there is going to be an initial inception with a, a, a bit of a you know dip down as, as you're putting in resources and whatnot to, to try and get something off the ground to testing and whatnot. You're going to have this growth as it 
starts to hit market as as people start to use the product or as the idea gains traction it's going to hit a peak of maturity where this idea is the greatest thing ever everyone loves it and whatnot and then it's going to decline and you can see this in all sorts of venues in life it can be in physical products it can be in ideas it can be in sports teams it can be in you know whatever it is that you're you're thinking of it change will happen over time and it will be the cool thing at one point and or hopefully will be the cool thing but inevitably it, it it experiences a decline and this is somewhat purposefully low definition in in his um in his idea so we have the the this this curve that comes up and what is the second curve is his essentially saying you need you need to start a a new cycle of innovation of development before you hit the peak or the maturity of, of this first one. And let's just take a physical product, for example, a computer, you need to start working on the next version of it, or perhaps even a completely new um, way to present a, a software such as through an iPad or something like that. And you need to do this well before you hit the, the peak of, of your current one, because when you try and innovate when you're on a decline it is much much harder and so if we go into page 23 he talks about the the timing of this and why you need to do this so the nasty and often fatal snag is that the second curve has to start before the first curve peaks only then are there enough resources of money time and energy to cover that first initial dip the investment period if you try to draw the second curve as one taking off after the peak when that first curve is turning down it doesn't work on paper or in reality the second curve never gets up high enough unless you give it a sharp kink. The problem, however, is knowing when that first line is about to peak. And so he's, he's talking about how, okay, yeah, you know, you have to try and get this before it's in. And so some of the examples uh, are, that he produces are Sir Alex Ferguson, famously from the Manchester United coach. Whenever he had talented players, whenever his side was was doing really well, and he was having these pe- these players who were hitting kind of getting close to the peak of their careers, he would be searching elsewhere for new talent to draw in so that these new players can start to mature, can start to have that initial period of learning, of getting associated with the team or the style of play and whatnot. And then when these other players have you know hit their peak and are starting to decline down, these new ones are, are now arising and they can somewhat replace or take take their place. Other ones of this I've already somewhat mentioned is Steve Jobs. So with the iPad, with the iPhone, whenever he had a big product release and everyone was starting to love it and sales were going through the roof, he was already working on a new product which would come out. He would get into the music industry. He would create you know, the tablet and things like that. And then you have the counter examples of this, which are things like Kodak. Kodak, the you know amazing uh, photography kind of business they dominated they had the best cameras they had the best quality and all this sort of stuff and yet they didn't realize okay the digital revolution is going to change how people interact with photography how it is it is done how people use it and so even though i believe they had a patent for for digital photography they they let it lapse or they didn't use it or they didn't start developing on it and so they experienced this massive decline and I don't know the full story. Perhaps they tried to innovate out out of it afterwards, but they never. They were just too late. They 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 started working on the on the right thing too too late, if they ever even and did start. So this is all really interesting and and really just going to show. Okay, you have to try and get to these things before they've hit their peak. Now, what 
this low definition, mm, the problem with the low definition of, of what he was explaining is one, he doesn't really give an uh, opinion on how to know when your heart is starting to hit the peak of something or when you can predict that. And he also didn't reflect upon what happens if you start too early and if you start innovating on the next new product before you're even in this kind of growth phase and you, you kind of kick yourself in the, in the teeth because now you're extracting resources from when you should be doing what you were doing well and trying to get this this harder. So it is very low definition and it's just a, a useful concept to start thinking about, I suppose. And all of this comes down to psychology. So to continue on from that page, psychologically, when everything is going well, it is reasonable to expect it to continue, other things being equal. Why not project the present into the future when it is so obviously successful? Success, however, however, puts blinkers on us, discourages doubt, reinforces itself. Only in retrospect can we look back and say, that was it, that was the peak, that was when we should have started to think anew. Unfortunately, being wise after the event is too late to be useful. And it all does come down to psychology eventually rooted in this, I think is not accepting change or not. There's just something about humanity where we do, we want things to just stay the same as they are. And what is this down to? You know, is this just because it's evolutionary, uh, evolutionarily taxing to be constantly innovating, to constantly trying a new thing and, and whatnot? Is it because of the age and risk relationship and so that people in these companies and both on an individual and in a company level, they reach a stage where they have become ossified, where they have uh, just through the process of time of you know the body physically ossifying and you know bones getting brittle and things not working as smoothly as they used to much and, and companies have the same sort of effect it's just too risky for them to to innovate to get out of it and this is why you don't really see a company that has been around for i don't know hundreds and hundreds of years there are some but it's so so rare and so there is something that it's like okay maybe companies and and products and things have to go through just this cycle of of death they have to experience this you, you can't just constantly innovate your way out into the future who knows who knows or maybe it's just there's too many opinions in these companies there's too many people who think that we should do this or think we should do that and so in the end you don't get any of this innovation so all of it does come down to somewhat psychology of this timing of, of hitting the second curve and you know starting to do it. But uh, I think it's a good analogy to, to think of. And if you want to know more about this, you can go to the book, How Innovation Works by Matt Ridley, which I've also uh, covered on this channel. Let's get into the second theme now. And this is justified outrage. It's fun, but dangerous. So I'm going to give a little bit of an explanation of the style of this book. It really was his personal opinions. It was his thoughts on society. And because he is you know, 83 years old when this was published, it, he has had a lot of time to live and see how society has changed over time. So I would say roughly it's kind of one third observing these changes as they have occurred. One third is his kind of explanations of them. So why have these things changed? Why have companies started acting in this certain way? Why do people do this on social media? Why is education in the state it's in? And then I suppose one third is kind of criticizing, critiquing it, highlighting the problems and, and really showcasing them. And he does a, a, a pretty good job of this. And so 
one of the things is you, you kind of see this justified outrage in his in his uh, in his work and his voice because so many of these problems do seem unfair. They do seem to be, you know, targeting certain people. They do seem to be just like why why have we gotten into this state? And so in this uh, section here where he's talking about the glass towers of capitalism, we have on page one hundred and six. Can we safely trust these big, aging, bloated, and selfish organizations with our futures? It is not time to return to the idea of a business or as a responsible community that pays due heed to all its constituents, one whose core purpose must be to seek immortality through continuous self-improvement and investment. I've concentrated on America where corporate capitalism has been most developed, but the same trend is discernible in other economies. Continental Europe is protected to a degree by its more rigorous governance structures and its greater reliance on the banks as the longer-term financiers. But even here, the temptation and pressures of the shareholder value model can be felt. And then he goes on to talk about how we've got the idea of a company the wrong way around and it shouldn't be to be, you know, creating stuff for the shareholders and associates and whatnot it should be focused on the end consumer and on creating a good product and whatnot there are many you know that that first sentence there is something that i would definitely <laughs> associate with you know this justified outrage of these big aging bloated companies you know screw them why are we you know why why do we have to live in this world where these things exist or and then there's many other examples in the book where he's talking about a certain way that you know government is structured with democracy it's like blah 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 you know you can kind of feel the the, the critique the, the the outrage in there and one of the things i suppose is it's important to remember that just because you have a good di- diagnosis doesn't mean that you have the cure or that there is even a cure perhaps so one of the things i took from this was He's a, he's a pretty good good observationalist, both of the past, of the present, and predicting where things will go in the future. I think he's done a pretty amazing job of that in this book. What is questionable is his kind of advice or implementations. Now, it's not really strong in this. It's only hints here and there where he says, oh, this is possibly something we could do. This is what I think might be useful. It's, he's not super, super strong in saying, we should do this, the should word, which I, I quite dislike. But a lot of his solutions somewhat boiled down to the government should do something. Somebody should do something. And uh, this is where I, th- I think it's important to remember, okay, just because you, 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 know, you can criticize, it's very easy to criticize, to, to point out problems and whatnot. It's much, much harder to create solutions to this. So you know, if you want to reinvent society, what is the best way of doing this? From what I can tell, just from his little pieces here and there, I would think that his his thoughts are that it should be a top-down sort of reinvention, that you know we should uh, put money in these different places or we should all do this sort of thing. And my, my thoughts are more of an individual-first type mentality where here's some of the things I think that can lead to, to dangerous situations where... Um, bad incentives go wrong or you know we we have seen enough of this in the in the 20th century of of systems of thought i'm talking mainly about communism here but there there were other ones where dictatorships and things like that can you can have very negative outcomes for for the society and what tends to happen with these is you have outrage on others behalf if unless you're outraged for yourself because it's something that's infecting you affecting you i think that's kind of you've got to be careful with that one 
uh, strong emotions of you know, railing against big bloating aging uh, corporations and whatnot and, and wanting to destroy them and things like that. You know, just be careful where those emotions will lead you. And in particular, uninformed opinions as well. Broad scale changes to uh, the education system, for example, not having worked in it, not having been a teacher, maybe isn't a great thing. Now, he was a teacher. He was a professor. So he does know about the education system somewhat, at least at the university level. But you can see all of this. And I would kind of argue, okay, if you want to reinvent society, what are better ways of, of doing it rather than having a top-down approach? I would say more the bottom-up approach. And this is where you can have kind of skin in the game. If it's a problem that's affecting me, I should be the one who's trying to fix it of kind of opting into things. So if I have a, a problem, I should be creating solutions where it's opt-in. People can join me if they want to and it's not, hey, you, you're, you have to be forced to do this or you know, your taxes should be going to here and you know, I have no say over whether that is a good idea or a bad idea. So you know, it's, it's not a strong thing. It was just something kind of simmering in the background of this book, maybe justified outrage, maybe outrage is a strong word or um, justified concern perhaps is another one. But there was this underlying feeling I got where he was really great at pointing out problems, but his solutions to them or, or, or reinventions of society, uh, I, th I think were a bit more questionable, but there was no doubt that he was a really great analyzer of, of seeing things and perhaps even predicting where they will go without him stating, oh yeah, and we should do this to get there or things like that. So interesting stuff from there. I'm going to go into my own observations and takeaways. I already was giving a fair bit there. I was smacking my lips over some of these sections. So there was one called the dilemmas of growth. I mean, if you know anything about me, I'm, I'm kind of anti-growth in many ways. Uh, the Ponzi Society, which was talking about the, the debt system and how we, the pension system, particularly in Britain uh, or the UK and how ridiculous that is. And he, yeah, he just has some really great kind of insights and, and things in places which I, I think were really good. So a small little one here from The New Disruption, um, just a tiny paragraph, so page 54. Living in the present is all very well, but if we fail the marshmallow test, we will shortchange our future. And so this is where he was talking about how social media, if we live too much in the present, it doesn't give us time to reflect on things, to be able to, to make analysis and delay gratification and that this constant mindset of living of of constant information coming in is is disrupting our ability to delay gratification and then the marshmallow test is this uh, very famous test uh, study from does he say in here 50 years ago so this is probably in the 1960s thereabouts of someone who was giving kids a marshmallow and he said you know you can eat this marshmallow now or if you wait 15 minutes I'll give you a second one and then the kids who waited and got the second marshmallow, when he measured them later in life, they tended to have better success and outcomes. I've seen some debunking of this. I don't think it's that strong. I think this is one of those ones, uh, one of those psychology studies that have somewhat survived the replication crisis, but uh, just just a, a word of caution there with that one. And then another one is a an idea here, which is something I battle with constantly. And it's, uh, you know, the, this... I was talking before about how I'm, I'm more of a 
a markets-based person and, and individuals first, but he has a good argument here of, of the counter to that of the top-down approach. And so he says, second curve thinking would accept that markets are useful, even essential, but that they need careful regulation and tight rules, that they do not work in all situation, in situations, that trusting to intermediate measures can be misleading, that an unquestioning belief in the power of the market to organize our lives is dangerous, and, and crucially, that the value of much of life cannot and should not be expressed in financial terms. To do so is to turn us into commodities. We are all richer than that in ways that cannot be priced. I think he makes a pretty good argument there. And this is a battle that I constantly have where I, I'm not a fan of top-down approaches of saying what you should and shouldn't do of, of regulation, of tight regulation and whatnot. But I am also not a fan of us of the of us being seen as a dollar sign as every individual having for every action a a dollar associated with that and you know there's a kind of conflict between the market and and which tends to do this and then this kind of top down approach which might have more of these ideas of other intangible qualities that we care about of you know, just justice of equality between you know, equality of um, opportunity, for example, of, you know, not having totally ridiculous laws of, of yeah, it's, it's kind of of the rich being able to get richer and, and you know, using their, their worth and their, their value to dictate things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he does fit in some really nice pieces of insights throughout this book. Uh, one which I gained was an insight into why in the Industrial Revolution, even though people were Moving from the the poorer, I suppose, outskirts of the the farmlands and things like that, moving into the city, even though they were getting bigger bigger wages, so you would think, oh, okay, they're not becoming as poor. One of the things that was happening was they were becoming less self sufficient, and so all that money that they were getting, they were having to spend on more things because they weren't able to now, you know, feed themselves. They weren't able to mend their clothes. They weren't able to get you know essential qualities which they they had more out in the in the farm life so it was put some some thoughts in my head and then there were some others which were just kind of mundane and didn't really affect me that much so there is a little bit of a mix in this book i'm going to give my my final summary uh i think it's a typical problem with books of essays is continuity so many of them seem to struggle to have a, a nice pleasant reading experiences going from chapter to chapter the 16 essays in here but these were all crafted for this work. I do believe that he he wrote each of these individually, even though they were kind of based upon other stuff that he has written. But you could tell because there were certain sections where he says, you know, and in this next section, I'm going to explain this idea more fu more fully, more thoroughly, which is very, it's so refreshing. I hate reading stuff, which has just been taken from elsewhere and combined and merged into this kind of Frankenstein book. Uh, this was not that. So even though this, the topics were somewhat scattered. You know, he was talking about the education system. Then he would talk about the financial policy. Then he would talk about social media. Then he would talk about um, government organizations. And then he would talk about companies and shareholders. All of these sort of things. But it was clear, consistent thinking throughout, which I, I highly enjoyed. It really is more for provoking thoughts or discussion on society rather than solving it, I would say. Uh, and solving problems so it's i'd say perfect for people who more like the little bit the, the more thinkers the more people who want to move on quickly from topic to topic or prefer the shorter form um so although personally I, it was 
Good for me, this, this book wasn't mind shattering. So overall, I'm gonna give Charles Handy's The Second Curve a seven out of 10. It's decent, it's decent. And that is it for today, my mere mortalites. Thank you for joining me to the end of this audio. What are your thoughts on Charles Handy on the second curve on reinventing society? I would love to know all of these things. The best way to do that is via sending in a boostergram. Now, I have had some comments recently from people asking, but Kyron, I've, I've tried to do this in Spotify. I have tried to do this elsewhere and I can't seem to do it. Unfortunately, my friends, this is something that does require a reinvention on your part of trying something new, of innovation. So, one of the ways that I get support from this podcast and, and comments and feedbacks and things that I really enjoy is people sending in a message. And you can do this directly within your podcasting app if you are using a newer app. Unfortunately, a lot of these legacy media apps such as Spotify, such as Apple, such as Google Podcasts, they are lagging behind on the innovation. They are well and truly into their first curve and they're on the decline and they have not shown any signs of, of wanting to get into the second curve. So what these new apps offer is, on the, as I mentioned, on the screen, you will see images that I've, I'm talking about of what the second curve actually looks like. You will see links to different places. You will get transcripts and um, captions within these apps, which uh, a lot of the legacy ones cannot do. So what apps would I recommend? Uh, if you go to podcastapps.com, you'll see a list there of all the ones who accept different uh, the features and whatnot. Um, I would personally recommend Fountain. I'd personally recommend Podverse and, you know, potentially in the future Podfans as well, which is more of a desktop based one. So all of those uh, with that, you're able to send in a message. It has some money attached to it and you'll just have to, to get to that app and you'll, you'll learn how to do that. If you want help with that, please reach out to me. And yeah, with all that being said, I really do hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are in the world. Kyron, out.